0: Please open your Bibles to First Peter chapter three. Today we will finish up this section of First Peter. We'll be looking at First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven. But well, I wanted to remind us of the context since it's been a couple of weeks. We will go all the way back to first Peter three, eight uh, to put the passage in the proper light and read down through four eleven so first Peter three starting at verse eight, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repeat evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord, is holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be the will of God, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit." Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for has ever suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin, so as to be so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh and the way people are, they may love and live in the spirit the way God does the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage, that the end of all things is at hand, and this tells us how we ought to be living our lives, what we ought to be striving for and hoping for and hoping in, and how to live. And we ask, Lord, that as we consider this, that you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us. In Christ's name, amen. So the end of all things is at hand. Now, you tell that to people, they say, oh, really? Well, that was written 2,000 years ago. Why should we worry? Why should we care? 2,000 years ago, everything was at hand. The end was at hand. Maybe it's already come. Maybe it's fast. Or maybe God's forgotten, and it'll never happen. Peter addresses this in his second letter in more details. And it's a long passage, but I want to read it because it'll help us to understand what he means here. By the end is at hand. In First Peter chapter, or Second Peter chapter three, the first thirteen verses. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. They will say, where is this promise of coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So there's the mocking, and we still hear that to this very day. Oh, he's coming soon. Well, it's been 2,000 years. That's obviously not true. They mock. But, he says, verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water. He's already, he mentions Noah a number of times and refers to the flood in his letters. So the world was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the day, a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. This is what he's talking about when he says the end of all things is at hand. You know, we think soon means this year. Soon means in my lifetime. But soon to the Lord is, you know, he, he created time, and he knows everything from beginning to end. Uh, many people take soon here to mean There's nothing else major to happen prophetically until the end. The Jews lived with the expectation not of the end, but of the coming of the Messiah, because they knew that would be first. We live in the expectation of the end, because there's nothing else to happen. And so it's the next thing. He's not slow to count his promise. The things of all things really are at hand. But notice what he says. Continuing in verse nine, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, perish, but all should reach repentance. So just like in the do- days of Noah, God was patient in giving the gospel, and now he is patient still in giving the gospel, calling men to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are Done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord, by which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heaven and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. A long section, but it really sets to mind what he's talking about when he says the end of all things is at hand. The universe will be burned up and destroyed. Nothing you have here will carry over. Not only can you not take it to the grave, but if you should return when you're alive, you can't take it to heaven. You can't take it to the new heaven, the new earth. Everything will be made new. All the old things will be destroyed as if by fire. They're all coming to an end. What kind of things are coming to an end? Well, John speaks of this in 1 John two, fifteen through 17. We all know that passage. Do not love the th- world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, this is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The desires of the flesh, the things we enjoy in this life, the pleasures that we have, they are passing away. We will not have them in heaven. We will not have them in the new heaven, the earth. Not the same way. We'll have better ones, better things. But those who live for them, those who desire them, those who sin, according to the passions of the flesh that Peter was talking about, the, the drunkenness and the orgies and the debauchery, those who live for them will pay for them in, heaven, in hell forever. And nobody will be able to continue in them. We will overcome the flesh when we are born anew with holy and perfect bodies and perfected spirits. We will continue to be sinless and the desires of the eyes, all the things we see and we'd like to have, you know, the nice house, the nice car, the money, the toys that many live for. That's why I was reading Ecclesiastes earlier. You know, it's all about all, you looked at all the pleasures this world can give and what is this conclusion? Meaningless, empty, vanity. Vanity in that case means emptiness, meaninglessness. Fear God. All of those things will be beyond our reach forever if we're in hell. And far better things, including seeing God, will be awaiting for those who belong to him. And so believers are called to not live for this world, to not live for this present age, but to remember the end of all things is at hand. God will destroy it. We will have new and better and greater things. And that is a great encouragement to us in how to live our lives. Because we are living in this wretched, sinful world that's at enmity with God. And we struggle to keep the balance between the things we need and the things that lead us to sin, the things we want and the things God wants. And so this is that great encouragement to us to turn away. And he he makes reference again, allusion to it at least, to Noah, which he was speaking about earlier. In the days of Noah, God waited patiently. I want you to think. Imagine you got a contract in, Af- in Alaska for a year. So you arrive in the fall, you spend your first winter there, summer comes and you're like, I need a ski mobile, I need better clothing, I need some toys for the outdoors. And at the end of the summer in September, your contract moves you to Florida. But there's no mountains and no snow and no need for any of that. What are you living for if you're saving up your money to buy things that you can't use? It's silly. And in the days of Noah, what were they living for? Oh, the pleasures of the flesh, the pleasures of the world, stealing and killing and murdering and hating and hurting and despising God, all the while knowing. In a short while, Noah will finish the ark and a flood will come and destroy the world. God's judgment will be upon them. But they didn't care. They didn't worry. They weren't concerned. Last week we talked about this a little more that they were, you know, they were living for the sensuality, the passions, the drunkenness, the orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And they were surprised that Noah wouldn't join them. And they're surprised that we do not join them. But why do we not join them? Because we are mindful that the end is at hand. Soon God will destroy all of those things. All of the pride of this life, all of the accomplishments that we have in a worldly sense will be gone. And the only things that we'll take with us are the accomplishments we have in Christ and the treasure we've stored in heaven. So why then live for the world? That's, I think, the great point here. Men live for the pleasures of that day and they don't worry about tomorrow and they don't think about it. And many Christians live that way too. They think, oh, I get it covered. I'm good. You remember the story of the ten virgins? Find it in Matthew 25. The kingdom of heaven, he said, it'll be like ten virgins who look to their lamps, who take their lamps and go to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom, of course, is Christ. The virgins are the believer of the church. It says, five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish took their lamps, but they took no oil. The wise who took flasks of oil with their lamps, and the bridegroom was delayed, and they became drowsy, and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, the bridegroom has come, meet him. And the ten virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, since it will not be enough for us and you, go rather to the dealers and buy it for yourselves. They weren't thinking ahead. They weren't living for Christ. They weren't living for God's return, for God's kingdom, for eternity. And the end came, and they were not ready. They had no oil for their lamp. There was no light left in them. This is really, this is a wake-up call. That Peter is giving us in this passage a wake up call. The end of all things is at hand. All the things you treasure in this world pride and material goods, your own glory, your own pleasures they're all coming to an end. How are you going to live your life? What is the goal you're striving for? And are you happy with where you are? Ten virgins were happy with a lamp with some oil. Well, five of them. Five of them thought they should bring some extra oil just in case. Because what's really important is being ready. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46 and following, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? I'll be looking at love in a moment, which he mentions in our passage. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing other than, than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? He says, therefore, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Are we happy where we are? Are we happy where we're going? Or will we change while there's still time? Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now imagine the things we have, the things we love. God may come in with his pruning tears and snip them off in our life. He says, this is contrary to what I want. This is detrimental to your growth. This is hurting your life for me. Snip, snip, snip. Will we change before he does that? Or will we have things taken away? It says, already you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. We want to be part of him, to be living for him, to be living through his strength, his, his power, his grace. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, it is he who bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, Christians, we often live our lives on our own strength, in our own wisdom, for our own purposes. And we're warned, the end of all things is at hand. Those purposes, that strength is not adequate. Those purposes are not desirable. Think about what is really true. He says, anyone who does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Now we have that warning from Christ to wake up. What are we living for? What is our purpose? What is our desire? What is our goal? Where are we going? You know, if you're on a journey from Seattle to San Diego, you want to be progressing along that journey. If you say, oh, today I made great progress towards Boston. Uh, it's not very helpful. You know, in our life, sometimes we think, oh, I've got great accomplishment, I've done a great thing, I'm moving forward. But are we moving forward to heaven? Or are we moving at a tangent? Away from God. Wake up. What are we living for? All of scriptures really call us to this thing, this call that Peter is giving us, to wake up, to be ready to face God. Now, Peter's explicitly talking about when the end of all things, when Christ returns. Some of us may not meet God first there. Some of us will meet God in death, as men have for the last 6,000 years plus. Jesus tells them a parable in Luke chapter 12, verse 16 and following. We all know this parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? for I have nowhere to steer, store all my crops. Then he said, oh, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample supply of goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required from you, and these things that you have prepared, who will they, whose will they be? You know, we do not know the hour that God will call us to stand before him. We, we often think, oh, I'm moving, you know, more or less in the right direction, and I'll get there. By the time I'm 80, I'll be ready. By the time I'm 90. By the time I die of old age. But not everybody has that chance. You don't know when he will call you. The end of all things is near. The end of our life is near. We don't know. We should be ready for him at any time. And ready to live, not in our sins, of course, as Peter is saying, but ready to live for eternity now. You know, the end is at hand. is another wake-up call for us not to live our lives in sin. And he tells us to be then self-controlled and sober-minded. Wake up. Abandon those lives of self-indulgent, those lives of no self-control, and be sober-minded and self-controlled. Now, the idea here of being self-controlled means to have our mind not only in control of ourselves but working correctly in the right direction. You remember the demoniac in Mark chapter 5? When Jesus got out of the boat, he was confronted by this man. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he'd broken them, chains and shackles, and he broke everything apart, and no one had the strength to subdue him night and day, he was among the tombs in the mountains, and he was crying out and cutting himself. But note what happens after he 's cured by Jesus, after the demon is driven out uh, he 's sitting with Jesus, and they come the, the people of the town come and mark. And they see Jesus sitting with this man. They knew him. They knew he was insane. He was wild. He would break the chains. He would scream. He would cut himself. And there he was. The man who had a legion in him sitting there. Clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. In his right mind is that word that we have here. That is how we are to be living our our lives. In our right mind. Not not wild and crazy and insane and doing foolish and stupid and evil things, but in control of ourselves and doing what's right at all times. Uh, This man may have been controlled by a demon, but the word helps us to understand the contrast between living in control of ourselves and living controlled by sin. This word is also used in in, uh, Luke rather. Uh, yeah, Excuse me, this word is also used in Romans 12.3. He says, for the grace given me, I say to everyone, not to think more of himself than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. There's the word again, that sober judgment, contrasted with thinking too highly of yourself. He's calling us to think rightly. Humility is not saying, oh, I'm nothing, I'm a worm compared to you but to think correctly about where you are, not too high, not too low, but reasonably, truly, in your right mind, with sober judgment. And so this word can also be the opposite of the sin of pride and arrogance. We are to live understanding ourselves with our mind correct, not too high, not too low, not unreasonable, but true. And Paul warns us, that we will either be one or the other, but not both. And that passage in Romans 6:15 and following, where he says, "What then, are we to live in sin because we're not under law but under grace?" Many people teach this today. And he says, "By no means, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin which leads to death, or obedience which leads to righteousness." But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So there is the contrast. If we obey our desires, we are slaves to sin. If we obey God, we are slaves to righteousness. And that's what he's telling us. The time has come. Wake up. Live for eternity. The end of all things is near. Live for what you can have. Live for what's real. And if we're self-controlled, then we live for God. If we are not self-controlled, then we are slaves to sin. And this is an important thing to think about in our lives. And the next word comes along with it, the sober-minded idea. Are we in control of in our right mind or are we... Outraged with emotionalism. Are we overcome by desires or bitterness or anger or enthusiasm even to the wrong wrong extent? Because those can distract us from God. They can distract us from the things we are called to have and to do. Peter, in the next chapter of our first Peter in chapter 5, Verse 8 and 9 says, To be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And so part of the idea of being sober-minded is being watchful of the devil, not being tempted, not being dragged into our sins. But being careful about everything, thinking clearly and being diligent in doing what is right. Jesus himself warns us concerning that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels or the sun, Mark 12 or Mark thirteen thirty-two and following. So be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know the time when it will come. It's like a man going on a journey who leaves home and puts the servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That is the same idea that we are to be aware of what's going on. We are to be careful, we are to be diligent, we're to be thinking about God and about heaven and about eternity because the end of all things is near. You know, this, this hostile, this sinful world is not a place for us to lose track of our mind or our morals. Not a, not a time for us to take off our eyes from the prize. But to always be focused on God and on his kingdom. Don't be drunk on the things of the world, but be sober-minded in all things. Ask the question, how am I glorifying God by what I am thinking, by what I am doing, by what I am desiring, by how I am acting? It's good to be zealous, but zealous correctly for the right things and not out of control in our zeal. And note that he also tells us that we do this for the sake of our prayers. Be alert, be awake, be watchful, be not drunk, be not drowsy, spiritually speaking, of course, if we are to survive, because we need to be that way for our prayers. If we're not careful, we're not awake, we're slothful or drunk, spiritually speaking, and not, not aware of the danger we're in, then we don't remember to pray for it. And if we don't pray, we don't receive. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter? Well, actually, in the night before, before they went to the Garden, remember how he was, he was so confident in his faith? In Matthew 26:33 and following, Peter answers him, even if they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Think about him. Was he being sober minded? Oh, I can do anything. I have the power. I will not deny you. But what happens? They go to the garden and Jesus tells them, watch and pray. Mark 14, 38 says, Jesus came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Did he watch and pray? No, he went back to sleep. He might have prayed for a little bit, but he wasn't aware of his need. He wasn't aware of the problem. You know, that great pride, I can do it, is now going to face the crisis. And what happens? Well, the crisis comes and Peter in his great enthusiasm and wild enthusiasm does what? He pulls out a sword and cuts off the man's ear. John tells us in 18, you know, it's funny, the Synoptic Gospels don't say who, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But now John comes along much later and he says, Peter is now dead at this point. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. (laughs) Well, that was his passionate nature. But was that what Jesus wanted? No, he said, that's enough. And he healed the man's ear. You know, his enthusiasm, his emotionalism, his excitability, he was not thinking soberly, spiritually speaking. And he followed Jesus, though, all the way up to where he was. And the bystanders there keep noticing him and thinking, hmm. And in Matthew 26, 73, 74, he says, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And Jesus, or no, and then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And the rooster crows. He did not see his danger. He thought highly of himself, of his own ability, of his own strength. He was not being sober-minded. He was not in his right mind when he said the things he did to Jesus, and he's not in his right mind here because he's given over himself to fear. That's why we're called to watch and pray, be careful, be diligent, be sober-minded, be, care- you know, be, be ready always to resist the devil. But he moves from this topic on to the next. And above all, keep on loving one another. Now, all believers love one another. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 4, 20, 21. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we, that we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. Keep on loving one another. If you are believers, you love each other. But what happens over time? The person annoys you. The person causes trouble. They, they sin against you. They stumble you. And your love grows cold. But he tells them, keep on loving one another. Love, particularly if we look at the love chapter, is not the way other people make you feel. Oh, I feel love. You know, We talked about that earlier. What are you doing different than others? if you love those who love you. You know, love is that commitment to treat somebody in the right way. To not be angry, to not collect a list of wrongs, to not do many things, but to demonstrate the love of God towards you in your love towards your brother. And so in that manner, it covers over a multitude of sins. Now, some people try to misrepresent this to say covers over a multitude of sins means if I just have love... My sins are paid for by my love. But seriously, can love pay for a sin? Uh, Psalm 49, we've read this many times, verse 7 and 8. No man can ransom another or give to God a price for his life, for the ransom for their life is costly and can never suffice. You know, Love is not a payment to God for your sin to cover over your sins. As some people try to teach, we read in Proverbs that hatred stirs up strife but love covers over all offenses Proverbs 10:12 and Proverbs 19:11 good sense makes one slow to anger and it is for his glory to overlook an offense you know there's nothing but the blood that can actually cleanse us of our sin before God what he's talking about is our love one another you know keep on loving one another because that love love for each other covers over the offenses that your brother has given. If you take offense at everything, if you're quick to anger, quick to be resentful, love will grow cold and there'll be strife. But if you love the person who has offended you, if it's necessary, you call them to repentance. If it's not, you can just overlook it. It's to a man's glory to overlook an offense instead of getting prickly about every little detail. It can be hard sometimes, and sometimes if it's a habitual sin of a person, you need to eventually confront them and deal with it. But notice, Proverbs says, it is to his glory to overlook an offense. Some men never overlook an offense, but use every offense as a means of glorifying themselves, and in doing that, they're not being very wise or sober-minded or diligent, and they're, they're looking for a foolish way of dealing with their sin. Oh, this person is worse. This person did this. And that is not what God is calling us to in Scripture and not what he's calling us to here in 1 Peter 4 that we should love one another earnestly since love covers the multitude of sins. We will cover our sins with them by showing them love and we will cover their sins to us by loving them. Where we can, and calling them to repentance where we must, of course. So, in that manner, it covers a multitude of sins. And it goes on to give a specific outworking of this love in hospitality for one another, without grumbling. There's one thing to do, to go, okay, i show this person hospitality, i got to be nice to them. Uh, <laughs> They're so unlovable and annoying. They're an outsider, they don't belong here. Come on, our Outsiders Bible study is down in the boiler room. (laughs) You know, we laugh. I was once in a church. It could seat 3,000 people. It had 10. There were 10 more in the children's church because the children in the church traditionally did not attend adult worship. And I was talking to them after the service. They'd had 250 visitors in the last year. Zero came back for a second visit. And I shook my head and said, yep, <laughs> the hospitality here. I felt like an outsider. I felt like I was trespassing. I felt like I should bow down and grovel before them that they allowed me to attend their church worship. And you know, there was no, there was no love. And there was certainly no effort to be hospitable to outsiders. But that is one of the things the church must do. You have a visitor come in, you don't know their situation. It might be that you showing them compassion will change their life. It might be that you're showing them compassion allows them to hear the gospel and actually receive it. That you might, your compassion, your, your love, your hospitality might be the thing they need. The tool that God uses to achieve his glory. He's called us to be hospitable. Now we can't be like the Autrophes who wanted to be first. And wouldn't acknowledge the apostles' authority and wouldn't, wouldn't offer hospitality to the saints who were traveling, but would turn them away and throw out anyone from his church who dared to show hospitality to outsiders who didn't belong with him, who weren't part of his party. No, know, that's, that's not where we're called to, to be. We're to love one another as God's adopted children, and even the stranger we don't necessarily know whether there will be one of God's children one day. You now, I shared my testimony. I was persecutor and harasser of Christians, and God changed me and called me. He transformed my heart and my life. Think of Paul. You know, he was murdering Christians and became an apostle. You know, we don't know who's worthy of our hospitality. And so we should be hospitable, turn from our sins, exercise our faith, serve one another before God, as each of us has received a gift, he says, use that gift to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You know, we have many gifts talked about in the Bible. Paul speaks of them a lot in first Corinthians in chapter 12, starting at verse four, he says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, the varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, that the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One, one is given the Spirit for the utterance of wisdom, another utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And he goes on to talk about the miraculous gifts. But we are stewards of the gifts that God has given us. Now, I don't think miraculous gifts are active today. They were to prove that the apostles' teaching was to be the new the scripture and to be received as such. And they were authenticated by their miracles. And that has gone away as the scripture is fulfilled, is finished. But all gifts that we have do come down from God. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of God heavenly lights in whom there is no shadow or turning. Uh, he gives examples of two of the gifts that he's really thinking about in this passage. Uh, the first one is teaching, speaking. The one who speaks is speaking the oracles of God. Now, uh, The contrast to that would be not the ideas of man. We all know what he's referring to here. Peter, in his second letter, chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, says, Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes about by someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The one who is speaking the oracles of God is the one who is speaking the Bible. Uh, We are not Paul anymore who have the Spirit in us to author the Bible. We have the Bible to bring out, to explain, to share, as it is the oracle of God. Uh, scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So the one who speaks, the pastors, the teachers, they're the ones doing the central work of the kingdom of God and the church, and they are to speak as speaking the oracles of God, not the ideas of man. The second gift he talks about is those who serve. Now, he may be speaking of the deacons specifically. In Acts chapter 6, we understand who they are. Verses 3 and 4, he says, Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, and we will appoint them to this duty. Duty was overseeing the physical needs of the people of the church so that there would be no fighting about who got what. <clears throat> but in verse 4, he says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so the deacon's service was to free up the apostles in particular and the pastors from having to oversee menial, mundane things like you know, making sure everybody has the right, enough food as they distribute to those in need. But really the idea for them and for the servants of the church is that they free up the pastors and the teachers to be in prayer and to be in the ministry of the word and to be serving in that way that God has called them so that they aren't worried about the other things. And so he says, those who serve, serve with the strength God has given them. It is God who gives us the strength, the knowledge, the understanding, the ability to serve God no matter what it may be, what service it may be. The deacons were in a ordained office, And they were the servants who oversaw the work, the service of the church, so the pastors and elders and uh, apostles could pray and could minister. But many others can work with them and under them, and we see them throughout the New Testament being commended. Oh, you know, so-and-so, servant of the church. Uh, Not all of them were ordained as deacons. Many of them were serving God in other ways or through the deacons. As I'm sure, our deacon can tell you, you know, if it's physical labor like climbing up a ladder and changing the light bulbs, he and I may not be the right one for the job. <laughs> but the deacon going to call somebody else to do, and that's and that other person is then serving the church, and serving God's people. Uh, simple example, but I hope you get the idea that the the teaching here is the the support work of the church that helps to enable the um, the worship and the, the preparations and preaching and teaching. I've told you that story of my home church when I got back from seminary. <laughs> oh, pastor, how can I help you now that I'm a seminary graduate? <laughs> Gave me a box of pencils. And we got a church that seats 300 people. Go around, take all the pencils out that have a broken tip, put a new one in and sharpen the other ones. And pick up the trash. Because the pastor was going to do that. You're going to spend three hours... Saturday afternoon, not praying, not preparing for the worship, but taking care of the needs, the needs of the building. Uh, so that's why the second job is very important as well, and that's why I think he mentions these two specifically. The preaching and teaching, the speaking, the oracles of God, and the support to make that happen so it's never, never lost. And he says we're to do all of this, For the glory of God. If we look at the end of verse 11. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now the glory is not. The glory of the workman who often wants to be glorified. Uh, The glory is not coming because of our strength and our ability and our wisdom. We've received the gifts from God. We put them into practice for his kingdom. And the glory belongs to him. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the all-glorious creator of all things. And we should keep that in mind first. He made this world for his kingdom, for his purpose. For his, for his glory. And our purpose should be then to bring that glory to him. Which is why Peter says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. You know, remember the end is near. We're, we're, we're going to have a new heaven and new earth and our place in it. Remember that our, our reward is saved up for us in heaven where it can't be corrupted or destroyed. That we have that reward because of Christ's death for us. All of these things Peter has been talking about in this book. And therefore that all the glory belongs to him and we should then live our lives you know, with that in mind. The end is coming. The new heaven, the new earth. Christ will reign. We will see His glory, and we should be working for His glory and for our place in eternity. That is what He called us to do, and that I think is what Peter is calling us to deal with here. Now, note that as Christians, we are often a bit complacent. Uh, I've become a Christian. I've, you know, I've been admitted to the church. I read my Bible. I'm A believer, I go to church every week. But are we progressing towards the goal? Are we uh, parked, sleeping in our car in a roadside truck stop halfway there? Are we driving in the wrong direction? Or are we working towards the goal? Complacency, A.W. Tozer says, is a deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is the stagnant soul. His idea being that we need to be aware of our need, aware of how far short of the goal we are, and to be working towards it. Uh, Thomas Edison, speaking about the world, not about spiritual matters, said, we shall have no better condition in the future if we are satisfied with all which we have at the present. And if we're satisfied with where we are as a Christian, we're not going to be able to move forward, is what I'm trying to get to. All of our progress towards the goal requires that we wake up, that we realize, oh, the day is at hand. The time is short. I should be doing what I can do to glorify God, working towards my place in heaven. And then we will have the hope of eternity, of hearing God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder at the end of all things is at hand. <coughs> we thank you, Lord, for the reminder to live for that new heaven, that new earth. <coughs> and we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to be complacent not to be satisfied spiritually with where we are, but to be satisfied with you and your Son and to be striving ever daily to draw nearer to you and further from the sins of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.